All right, we're going to let the uh, children be dismissed as quietly as possible for junior church. It's a good sign when you make that announcement that there's a lot of kids in our church family. One of the things that a lot of people comment on when they visit at our church is they're amazed how many children there are in our church, and they see that as a good sign of uh, what God is doing and of his future plan for our church family. And so that is a joy. As we begin this morning, I want to just remind you of a passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has a personal encounter with the glory of God. And he sees the holiness of God, he sees the need of the people of God, and there's a call that goes forth about the need for the people of God to know the truth of God so that they can have a relationship with God. And the response of Isaiah is three very simple words. He says, here am I. Send me. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the topic of discipleship and how that works out in our Christian experience. We've been examining uh, what it means to follow Christ, to observe his life, and then to do what Jesus did as our core commitment. And I believe that our effectiveness as a church family is in direct correspondence to our commitment to being disciples of Christ. Uh, What makes a strong church is strong people. And I believe that the more we find ourselves released to the call and plan of God on a daily basis, the stronger God will cause us to be and the more effective He will allow us to be uh, in reaching our community for His glory. And so my heart's desire in sharing this series on what it means to be a disciple. My desire is that we would ultimately come to God and say, God, you know what? I've examined the call. I am now aware of the cost. And these are the three words that I offer to you. Here am I. Similar to the response of Samuel in the book of 1 Samuel when God was seeking to speak with him, but he did not yet know the voice of God. And finally, the the priest who was less than a godly man, suspected that maybe it was God who was calling out to Samuel. And the third time that God called out to Samuel, Samuel said this. He said, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Your servant is listening. And so this morning as we come to the Word of God, I would just ask you in the quietness of your heart just to go to God and say, God, My prayer to you this morning is this. Here am I. Here am I. And in the words of Samuel, speak, Lord. I am listening. I am listening with an ear to obeying everything that you show me from your word today. So we're going to delve into a passage that is in many ways a very difficult passage. Luke chapter 14. We're going to begin in verse 25. Luke Chapter 14. I want to read this passage of Scripture and then work our way through it together this morning. Looking at this theme, cost counting and Christ following. Cost counting and Christ following. And I am stating them in a sequence intentionally with the assumption that if I don't count the cost of following Christ, I will not follow Christ. 
I may begin to follow, I may feel a desire to follow, I may initiate a step, but I will not live my life following Christ unless I understand first what are the costs that are involved in being a devoted, fully devoted, committed follower of the Savior. So Luke 14, verse 25. And and let me just say this. Don't get distracted by the really hard sayings that are in the first two verses, okay? Stay with me through the rest of the paragraphs, okay? And we'll come back and help to understand what these things are saying. Verse 25, it says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose that once of you, one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying, this fellow began to build, but he was not able to finish Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up, and this is profound, Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So two times in this text, the end of verse 27, the end of verse 33, I find this cannot be my disciple, cannot follow me. And it sets the tone for this text. Cost counting and Christ following cost counting must always precede or Christ following must always follow uh, cost counting in our lives. Matthew 16, we looked at this passage a few weeks ago. If anyone wants to come after me, and then Jesus lists conditions that must be met in order for individuals to be devoted followers of Christ. I give you this definition of disciple this morning. One who observes Christ's life and imitates Christ's life. Someone who observes the life of Jesus and imitates the life of Jesus. One who desires above all to do what Jesus did in every circumstance that he or she faces. Now, One of the things that jumps out as you enter into this passage of Scripture is verse 25. The first phrase, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Okay, and it's fascinating as you read through the Gospels, you find that Jesus was at some level a charismatic strongly dynamic, attracting leadership figure. He drew large crowds. If you go back, and you may just want to do this, turn back to Luke chapter 8. Just turn back a few pages. I just want to establish this fact that there was much about Christ that was attractive to the multitudes. Luke chapter 8 and verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told them this parable. So there's this dynamic of people coming to Christ. Go to chapter 12, turning ahead a few pages, and look at verse 1. 
It says, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered. Now, just think about this. Okay, on a Sunday morning, we have about 180 people here. Okay, there are crowds of many thousands that are coming to Christ. In the ancient culture, when the population was much lower, there are thousands that are coming. And notice what it says. So that they were trampling on one another. Okay, so there is an excited crowd of onlookers who are following Christ, listening to the teaching of Christ, and seeing the miracles of Christ. When I come to Luke chapter 14 and verse 25, I find the same dynamic again. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with him. And we know that those crowds, at times, went into the realm of numbers similar to fifteen to 20,000 people. Okay, if you go to a, a devil's ice hockey game or a basketball game in that kind of arena, there's typically seating of ten to 20,000 people. Okay, what does that tell you? It tells you many people were attracted to the message and person of Christ. But you will also find that in the experience of Jesus with the crowds, he had a tendency at times to kind of throw down the gauntlet, to draw lines in the sand, to kind of pair off, separate out those who were part of the crowd and those who were truly committed to being followers of Christ. And so as you study his experience with his followers, of which there are many levels of followers, you find this kind of a picture. And Rick Warren kind of identifies this in his book, The Purpose-Driven Life and the Purpose-Driven Church. You will find that there is around Jesus a crowd. And that is true, I believe, here on every Sunday morning. There are people that come and visit within this church. Within that group of people that attend this church, within that crowd, there is a group called the community. They are people who attend here on a regular basis who would say, the chapel of Warren Valley is my church. Okay, there is for them some level of commitment. But then within that community, there are people who are truly committed sacrificially to joining in to what this church is about, to serving others selflessly, who sacrifice for the same cause that we are all committed to. And then within that context, you also find that there is typically a group that we call, I call, the core. Okay, people that you can't live without. If they don't show up on Sunday morning, there's going to be holes. Okay, there are going to be things that don't get done if they don't show up. And I believe that Jesus, as he identifies the crowd in this situation, is not necessarily seeking to drive people away. His intention is to discern out for them what level of commitment do you have? Are you really devoted to following Christ in spite of the cost? Because as you understand as you go through this passage, the cost of following Christ is very high. Weak commitment will not lead to being a disciple of Christ. It is only a costly commitment that will free and liberate individuals to be fully devoted followers of Christ. And that becomes clear as you study through his life. This is one of those accounts where he is drawing a line in the sand that when we read it in our language, if you don't hate your mother and father your brother and sister, even your own life, you can't follow me. I don't know what your response is to that this morning. I'm going to say, in the minimum, that's strong language. It's strong language. 
And I think in order to understand what it means to follow Christ, I have to come to terms with what that is going to look like in my life. There's part of me that reads those words and says, you know what, I don't know if I really want something to do with hating my own wife, my mother and father. So we have to kind of pull back and say, okay, what is it that Jesus is seeking to communicate to the crowd that will ultimately result in a community of people that are committed to the same sacrifice for the cause of Christ? And so this echo, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple, emerges out of this text two times. Now, in the middle of the text, before I deal with that difficult passage, this is just a sermon of avoidance, okay? I want you to look at verse 28 and verse 31. Because the whole issue here is going to be cost counting must precede Christ following. Meaning, I'm not going to stick with Christ and do everything he did unless they have first made a determination to count and make the cost that is involved in being a devoted follower of Jesus. I need to understand what is involved. Okay? And to press that point home, Jesus uses two analogies or metaphors. One is an analogy of building a building. One is an analogy of war making. Okay? In terms of building a building, beginning of verse 20, 28, he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. So, Let's say or you want to build a shed in your backyard. Okay, I did that a couple years ago. I sat down, I drew up a material list. I decided if I had enough money in order to build that shed. Why? Because I have a tendency in my life to start things and not finish them. And when my wife points that out to people in my house, I find it embarrassing because she's right. I live in a house that's 10 years old now. It's not done. There's trim upstairs that's still not in. That's why nobody's allowed to go upstairs in our house. Okay? In this analogy, what's, what's happening? A man begins to build this building. Okay? And Jesus says, so if you're going to build a building, what are you going to do? You're going to draw up a material list. You're going to create a budget for the project, what it's going to cost. And based upon that cost, you're going to determine whether you're going to follow through with your plan or not. Now, in, in, our, in our hometown, there was a house... That I remember, it was a be- when this house started to go up, it was, it was obviously going to be very big and very beautiful. But I remember watching that house sit unfinished. Uh, I, don't know if my dad, I, I wish I could remember the street because my parents are here. They probably remember this house. I remember driving past the house thinking, that's weird. That's weird. And, and in your mind, here's what you're thinking. That guy must be like be a total idiot to spend a couple hundred thousand to get the house to that point, And it's uninhabitable. Why, and here's what you're thinking in your mind. Why didn't he think about how much it would cost to complete the project before he started it? And in your mind, you're kind of like, this is, that doesn't make sense. And Jesus pushes that same analogy upon the crowd. Won't you first sit down and figure out what it's going to cost so that you can be sure that you can keep with the commitment that you're making? Then he goes into an analogy about war making. Suppose a king, he's going to get ready to go to war. He's got 10,000 soldiers. He's going up against 20. He should really think about engaging an army that has twice the number of soldiers before he encounters them in a conflict. And so in the analogy, what's the man do? He sits down and he determines, I don't have the resources to do this. And when he realizes he doesn't have the resources to do it, he calls for terms of a peace treaty. Why? The cost is for him too high. So he doesn't follow through with the commitment. Okay, why does Jesus give the illustrations? to encourage us to count the cost of being a fully devoted follower of Christ before we say we're going to be one. He wants us to assess 
what it means to follow him and then make that kind of commitment. And so the question that I want to kind of put before you this morning, or the exhortation I want to bring to you this morning is this. Before you pronounce or boast of your commitment to Christ, before you understand, be sure that you understand the cost that is involved in Christ following. Before you say, I'm all for that. I'm ready to go. Ask the question. And I'm this way. People say, you want to go to this? Yeah. And then later I start thinking, wow, I wonder how much that's going to cost. And I wonder how many days we're going to be away and how much time is that going to cost me and how many commitments am I going to miss because I made this other commitment. I, I tend to be impetuous and jump forward in something like that. If the idea sounds good, jump into it and work everything out along the way. You can't follow Christ on those terms. He's dealing with the crowd, many of whom he knows have not come to believe him. They're attracted to him, but they are not yet believers. Before they come believers, before they come to follow him, he says to them, look, there is a cost involved in following me. And I want, he doesn't deceive them and kind of snooker them into being Christians and then lay on them. Hey, this, by the way, this is going to be really rough. He puts it to them ahead of time. The true, dramatic, sacrificial cost of being a Christ follower. And friends, this morning, if you've trusted Christ, I want to encourage you to count the cost and make the sacrifice. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, here's what I want to do, because I believe that is the heart of this text. I want to challenge you to understand what it will cost you to follow Christ and how joy-filled you will be if you make that sacrifice to be his follower. And so let's look at, just from this text, three of the costs that emerge when you commit to being a fully devoted follower of Christ, because this is my proposition, there is no Christianity, there is no Christ following without cost. There is no Christian life that does not involve, at some level, personal sacrifice and cost. And I want to identify from the text three of the cost of following Christ. Now I'll go back to the difficult part of the text. Oh, we're out of time, sorry. Let's pray. No, just kidding. All right, verse 26. What is the first cost that you have to reckon with and you, just, you need to work this out with God and then go forward in your life? What's the first cost? Verse 26. To the large crowds, he said, if anyone wants to come to me, that is, and implied throughout the text is this idea of following. If anyone wants to come, but does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Uh, Mindy Wells, who's a new Christian in our midst, called me about a month ago and said, I read this verse. What does that mean? I think what she was saying is, when I met you all, what did I get into? Okay? Are you guys like really weird? Okay, this text shocked her. Why? Because it calls for something that is very difficult. It calls for a sacrifice that is, for many of us, uh, one of the most difficult sacrifices that we will ever have to make. What does it mean? And I believe it's this. The cost here is relationships. The cost is relationships. And I, I want to phrase it in the, in, in the form of a question. Will my allegiance to Christ trump all other relational commitments? Okay, do you understand the question? Will my relationship and commitment to Christ trump 
all other commitments in my life. And I think that's the direction this is starting to go. I want to try to give you some illustrations to help you to understand what Jesus means when he says you must hate. If you're going to, but it, it, he's not just saying out there in the middle of nowhere, you need to hate your mother and father. He's saying in the context of, if you want to follow me, you must do this. It's going to cost you in terms of relationships. It's a hard saying. Why is it hard? Because it deals with the most precious relationships in the normal life. Your family relationships. In the ancient world, they were the most basic unit of society. That's a little bit different in our culture. Unfortunately, for many, they were their most precious relationships. And I would argue that for many of us here today, they are, those family relationships are the most precious relationships that we have. And Jesus enters into the scene and says, in the face of that relationship, you have to hate your mother and father. The cost of relationships. Turn with me back to Luke chapter 5 because we're going to find a hint of this in the call of Christ to his disciples early on. Luke chapter 5 and verse 10. This is after Jesus has come to Simon. They're fishing. They didn't catch anything all night. He says, hey Simon, push out a little bit deeper. Cast out your net. And Peter's thinking, you know, when it's a bad night fishing, it's a bad night fishing. It doesn't hit at the end. A bad night's a bad night, and a great night's a great night when you're fishing. Anybody that's fished knows they're either biting or they're not. But he pushes out, he casts down the net, and they bring up this tremendously large catch. Peter rose to the, sh- rose to the shore with his friends. Uh, I think if I look at this, eventually Peter jumps out, right? And he goes to the shore with this net full of fish. When Peter saw this, verse 8, it says, he fell at Jesus' at Jesus's knees and said, Go away from me, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished as the catch of fish which they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they, the three of them, what did they do? They pulled their boats on shore and left everything and followed him now folks we we don't even we hardly grasp what that means these guys on the call of christ left their nets which is what they left their job they left their family connections because without doing that they could not follow christ And if you go through some of the other texts, it it starts to take this kind of a tone when he's calling the disciples. They left everything. They left their father and their business and they followed Christ. They sacrificed relationships in order that Christ could be the primary, substantial, significant relationship in their life. They made choices to sacrifice the cost of relationships. When I got married, and probably for most of you here, in your wedding vows, you said something like this. You said, and forsaking all others, I will keep myself for her alone. Okay, now, bound up in that forsaking all others, what did you mean? What did you mean? I don't give a rip about any other women on planet Earth. Is that what you meant? I'll keep myself for her alone. Does that mean when I said that, 
that I was saying to my mom, you know what? I could care less about you and your needs. I'm taking care of my wife. She's number one. She's the only one. What does it mean when we said that? You know what we were saying? Forsaking this level of commitment of love to anybody else, I give it to my wife, Ruth. What was I saying? I love her more than I love anyone else. What does Jesus mean when he says, if you don't hate your father and mother? What is he saying? He's saying, if you don't love them less than me, you can't be my follower. If your love for me does not trump your love for them, if when I call you to go and follow me, you go back and you check with mom and dad to see whether you're going to follow, you don't love me like you should. Okay, it's just, it's a love less. And it's very similar, I think, to that marital. I thought of that this morning as I was sitting at my desk. Thought, you know, it's like forsaking all others. It doesn't mean I'm trashing all other women. It just means that I have made a choice to commit my life to meeting her needs before I meet the needs of anybody else. She comes first in my life. Okay, and it's that kind of allegiance, that kind of relationship that Jesus calls for from us as his children. It's not to despise other women. It's not, oh, I can't stand other women, so I commit myself to my wife. No, it's forsaking this kind of allegiance to any other woman. I give it to you alone. And that is what we are saying to Christ. Christ, I, look, here's the Christian heart. Our heart should always be, Christ, I love you more than I love anything else. And so we sang that, that, that song, Take My Life, Here Am I. Do you understand what you're saying? You're saying, Christ, I love a lot of other people, but I love them less than I love you. And this is for us as Christians a constant battle. It's easy to worship your family. If you love your kids, it is hard to keep them in second place. If you love your mate, it's hard to keep them in second place, subordinated to Jesus. But here's the blessing. Here's the blessing of paying the cost of relationships. If in your relationships you are committed to being a Christ follower, your mate, in my case, my wife, will have the best husband that she could possibly have if Christ is first in my life. If as a mom and dad you say to your kids, I love you, but I love Jesus more, and you live out a commitment with that kind of love, your children will have the best parents that they could possibly have. You see, we get it backwards, don't we? We see a conflict between the two. I don't see a conflict between the two. The text doesn't belie or betray some kind of a conflict between the two. It's if you love Christ, the greater blessing in your relationships will come. It's just that those other relationships need to be secondary to your love and commitment to Christ. I'll illustrate this in the, rain, in the realm of food. I have affection for chocolate. I have a pronounced affection for dark chocolate. Doesn't mean I don't like milk chocolate. Okay? But I can tell you this. Anytime you put dark chocolate and milk chocolate in front of me, I've already made a commitment in the past, okay? I'm going to go for the dark chocolate, okay? It, it doesn't mean that if the only option on the table is milk chocolate that I won't eat it, because I will, okay? But if I'm given the choice, I want you to know what direction I'm going. And that is, that is the heart that you need to cultivate in your relationships? Husband, you need to say to your wife. Wife, you need to say to your husband. Mom and dad, you need to say to your kids. Kids, you need to say to your parents. If push comes to shove, 
and you ask me to disobey Christ, you will be on the losing end. Because I love him more. Okay, and if you, if you capture that, it mean, to hate means to love less than you love Christ. He demands nothing short of complete allegiance. As Christians, we live for an audience of one. You want to live a divided, distraught, distracted life. Try to supremely love an individual and love Christ simultaneously. You will not be able to do it. Jesus said this. He said you can't serve two masters. And how does he say it? You're going to hate the one and love the other, or you're going to love the one and hate the other. He uses the same terminology. And the idea means to love less. You say to your boss at work, I am a Christian. And I want you to know that in this workplace, I will do everything in my power to be a Christian witness here. I will do everything in my power to obey you and to follow you and to follow the directions and and, and all the things that you bring into my work experience. I will do my best. But you need to know this. And it may come up in a circumstance where you're asked to do something dishonest. And you have to say, you know what? I can't do that. But I, I don't want you to think I can't do it because it's about me. Because I'm so morally superior to others. No, I'm not. But I have an allegiance in my life to Christ. And my allegiance to him says that I can't do this for you. You're my boss. I would love to help you out, but I can't. And sometimes that's going to cost you your job. Sometimes that's going to cost you a close relationship with your boss. And you'll begin to experience distance. And you're going to wonder if you're going to lose your job or not because you took a stand. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Will you love me more than you love anyone else? And as a Christian, understand that this is the greatest blessing that you can give into your family experience, into your relational experience, a heart that is fully devoted to Christ. I ask you this question this morning. Is your allegiance to Jesus clear? Is it clear? Is he, in the realm of relationships, the first priority that you consider when you make a decision? It will cost you relationships to follow Christ. Everything will have to come into a certain kind of arrangement. Secondly, it will cost you this. It will cost personal ambitions, desires, and plans. It will cost personal ambitions, desires, and plans. I say, Tim, where is it in the text? I believe it's at the end of verse 27. Or, I'm sorry, verse, verse 26. If anyone does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, even his own life. Isn't that fascinating? You know what Jesus is assuming? He's assuming that all of us have implicitly within us a degree of self-centeredness that will allow us to hurt our wife, hurt our husband, hurt our kids so that we can have what we want. He understands that. And so the second cost of being a full-on devoted follower of Christ is this. It is the cost of personal ambitions and desires and plans. I believe when Jesus says this, even his own life, he's harking back to what is said in Matthew 16. If you're going to come after me, the first thing you have to do is what? Deny yourself. You have to say goodbye to yourself. You have to say to yourself, you're not number one in this life. Jesus is. Even his own life. Now, how does this kind of tweak out, if you will? Even your desire for the approval of others needs to be subordinated to your desire for the approval of Christ. 
There's a fascinating text in John chapter 12. And I'll just read this passage for you real quickly. John chapter 12 and verse 42. It's another context where Jesus is kind of carving the crowd down to really devoted followers of Christ. It says in verse 42, John 12, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. Okay, there were, amongst those that were in this crowd, leaders of the Jewish people, Pharisees and Sadducees, who believed in him. They were acknowledging, mentally assenting to the fact that he did do the miracles. That there was something spectacular and supernatural about the life that he was living. And you would think, you would think, that if people saw the work of God, that they would fall on their face like Peter did and said, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man in the boat. You would think that they would respond like that. But in this text, something very sad occurs. It says, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. What would they lose? Relationships. And because they didn't want to lose the relationships. They wanted the respect of man. They would not confess him publicly. For, verse 43 says, they loved the praise from men more than the praise from God. And that gets right to the heart of the issue, doesn't it? The decisions you make in terms of morality in your life will be dictated by who you want to please. Yourself, others, or Christ. And typically, they will be the only three options. And Jesus' directive is clear. You can't please everybody else and please me simultaneously. There will be a cost involved. That cost will be your personal ambitions and desires. What the religious leaders loved was the respect of others. Jesus called them on the carpet on this, didn't he? He said, you guys love to parade around the temple in your long robes. You love when people give you greetings and say, oh, Reverend Timothy Charles Hoff. Okay, you love that. I actually hate when people do that to me, but love it less. But I do love it, okay? If you understand what I'm saying. We want the respect of people. We want the approval of people. And sometimes we get it at the expense of allegiance to Christ because we love ourselves too much. Jesus says all your other relationships in life need to be second. Your allegiance to yourself, which is deadly and insidious, it needs to be second to Christ. It's the only way to kill your flesh than to keep its desires under wrap and under control from being devastating and destructive forces in your life. You have to say, look, my allegiance is first and foremost to my Savior. My desire for a good life, to live the American dream, needs to be subordinated to the call of Christ and the purpose of Christ in my life. And I want want to argue for you this morning that that which sounds hard and sacrificial is actually the path to true freedom in the Christian life. It is the key that unlocks the door to a fully devoted life following Christ. And I, I think I can argue that from Paul's words in Acts chapter 20. He has begun a few chapters earlier this journey that is taking him from Jerusalem to a place of death in Rome. He knows that. Prophets along the way are confirming, Paul, when you get there, you're going to die. And here's what Paul says. And now, having heard the warning that in Rome my life will end, having heard that warning, compelled by the Spirit. Remember how we talked about this last week? If I'm going to follow Christ, I must cultivate a sensitivity to the promptings and the call and the voice of the Spirit of God in my life. 
Paul says, compelled by the Spirit. I'm not, Paul's not saying, he's saying, I'm not going there in order to give my life up. I'm going there to obey God. To do His will, to do His bidding, His call. And so compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Think about that. They're telling them what's going to happen. Paul says, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I know this. In spite of what will happen, that's where I'm going. I don't know what's going to happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me. I'm going to think about this. The Holy Spirit's warned me that prison and hardships are facing me. Here's the logical question. Then why are you going? Why are you going to Rome if you know that the Holy Spirit is warning you that there, there is hardship and imprisonment and suffering and ultimately death? Here's what Paul says. And this, if this could become our heart, he says, however, okay, so just lay that. In there, there is imprisonment and ultimately the likelihood of death. Paul says, however, <laughs> you're going to love that. He says, I consider my life worth, and this would drive modern psychologists wild. I consider my life worth nothing to me. He needs self-esteem. He's got a low self-image. That's Paul's problem. How do you get to the place where you can say, I count my life worth nothing to me? It is not the greatest treasure. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul says, I'll do that whether by life, Philippians chapter 1 verse 20, remember last week? Whether by life or by death, I want to be sure that Christ is made known to the world around me. Folks, there is a cost in following Christ. It is the cost of relationships. It is the cost of personal security and personal desires. I was fascinated two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I got a call from a new Christian in our church family. He was reading his Bible. I had not talked to him about the issue of baptism at all. He called me and said this. He said, I've been reading my Bible. And I need to get baptized. I said to him, you're the first person that's ever called me as a new believer and expressed the desire to do what you read so immediately. Folks, I don't know about you, my heart was blessed. Someone comes to Christ, reads in the Bible that Jesus wants them to get baptized, and they're saying, I need to do that. You know what drives me crazy? When I have to convince someone that's been in Christ for a length of time that you really should obey him? in the waters of baptism and publicly profess that you know him personally? Folks, we should be stunned by our reluctance to obey. And we should be encouraged when God puts into our sphere of influence people that read the Bible and think they're actually supposed to do it. The response I wanted to give him was, just because you read it there doesn't mean you need to do it. But in his heart, there was an understanding that as someone who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ who has had their heart changed by the grace of God, I really probably should obey him. And on February 22nd, he'll be following the Lord in the waters of baptism in our baptism service. My heart was so challenged because so often I feel that in America we have to drag obedience reluctantly out of the hearts of believers. Because we don't want to pay the cost. 
And the third thing, and I just touched this real quickly, that it will cost you to follow Christ is your possessions. Verse 33 of our text. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't saying if you don't give it up, it's going to be difficult to be a disciple. He's saying if you don't give up everything you have, which is what? And this is the last cost. The last cost that I need to make is the cost of control. What will I, what, uh, will I give up control of my possessions so that I can follow Christ? Will I experience liberation from the slavery to material possessions so that I can be truly free to follow Christ? That's the question you have to wrestle with. I have a fear. I have a fear that my kids will have it better than I do. Because I wonder how much that will distract them from the call of God in their lives. I fear that they want what I have, the blessings that I have. And are, you wrestle with that. Thank God for the hard times he puts us through to bring clarity. Thank God for the current situation that our country is in financially. Because you know what? It opens hearts. It helps us to realize I don't really control all these things. And that guess what? We can live without most of them. And still have a productive life for the glory of God. Don't tell your kids that they need to have it as good as you have it. Don't direct their career based on the income that it will produce. You, you, you can't look at this text and raise your kids with income as the goal of the job that they choose. You can't. If you don't give up all of your possessions, and, and I think the idea is this, will I relinquish control of those things? Will I make them available? Do I make my home available? Do I make my resources available? Or am I clinging to them because they are what make me happy? Jesus is saying you can't serve God and mammon. It is not a command not to do that. It is a statement of impossibility. I can't love stuff and love Christ. I have to love stuff less. It has to be subordinated. And I believe that is one of the profound struggles of the Christian experience. In Luke chapter 5, I just read you this real quick. When, when Luke is called by Christ, or when Matthew is called by Christ to come and follow him, he is a very wealthy tax collector. He sits at the chief tax collector's table. He owns that station. Luke chapter 5 then, in light of this wealthy position he finds himself in, it says after this, excuse me, Jesus went and saw a tax collector. And if you go back, the Greek word is a chief tax collector. His name is Levi, later to become Matthew. He is at his tax booth. He is in his business. Jesus looks at him and says, Matthew, follow me. Follow me. And those two words lead to this response. After Jesus had said this to him, Levi, Matthew, to become, got up and left everything and followed Christ. It is so easy to read through that as a routine, saying, you know, I know that passage. I know what it says next. But listen, he got up in response to a, actually in the original language, it is a single word, akalutheo, follow me. He got up, and his life was never the same. He got up, and his life was never the same. Now you have two choices. You can say Matthew was a fool. 
Or Matthew was the smartest man at that moment on planet Earth. I choose the latter. I choose the latter. The cost of following Christ, relationships, personal ambitions, and possessions, which in our culture are an Achilles heel. I ask you this question this morning to close. Are you in Christ? And if you're not, if you don't know Him personally, what is keeping you back? Is it relationships? Is it your personal plans? Is it your stuff? Because we know that in the Bible there was a rich young ruler that came to Christ and said, Lord, I want to follow you. Jesus said, give up everything you have and come and follow me. He knew where his heart was. You know what the Bible says? He turned and walked away sad. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, how hard it is for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's hard to give up what makes you happy. It's risky to give up what makes you happy. Same thing is true in relationship to your mate. Same thing is true in relationship to a boyfriend or girlfriend, which you shouldn't even have. Same thing is true in relationship to your, your kid. Whatever the relationship is, the same thing is true. If you, you try to get your happiness from those things, folks, you will end your life sad because one day that person will be gone, or you will. What's the relationship that lasts forever? Your relationship with Christ. People can always do in heaven, will I see so-and-so and so-and-so? You know what? When you get to heaven, Christ will so capture your attention, will so gloriously satisfy just beyond the cost. He will so gloriously satisfy even in this life if you make these decisions that those relationships will bring you joy, but it will not compare to the joy of knowing Christ. So if you don't know him, my call to you is make the sacrifice, pay the price, and follow him. Come to know him. And if you know him this morning, maybe this morning you look and you say, Pastor Tim, I'm in the crowd, or I'm part of the congregation, but I'm not committed because I haven't wanted to pay the price. What the chapel at Warren Valley needs is committed Christians. What we need to impact our community for the glory of God is commitment. People that are reliable who say, you know what, I will be there faithfully to support what God is doing through this church because I believe in the vision that God is giving us as a church family to reach our community with the gospel of Christ. When we hold a parenting seminar that Victor and Diana Kelly are leading on April 4th, I'm going to go. I'm going to invite some of my friends to come because I believe that there, they along with the four other churches that are joining us will hear the good news of Christ and that we together by sacrificing a Saturday morning, a little bit of time, a little bit of relationship, some of our possessions, we'll be able to see the work of God advanced in this community for the glory of God. And here's my conviction, that when that begins to happen through our church family, this will be a place of greater joy. And it will be because of the cost that is paid. Because just on the other side of risk, and just on the other side of cost, the love of God will be affirmed in your life. And what it is, you're going to praise Him. You're going to worship Him. And you're going to be exactly where He wants you to be. Don't let things hold you back. Don't let relationships hold you back. Don't let your personal agenda hold you back from the joy-filled Christian life that can cause you to say, as Paul did, I do not count my life dear unto myself. If I perish, I perish. But I will live for His glory in spite of the cost. Father, we thank you this morning for your word.